Hi, I'm Gus Wallen, and this is Not An Overnight Success, brought to you by Sean Partners Financial Services. This is a podcast where we sit down with some very successful people from the world of business, entertainment and sport, and chat about their life's journey and what got them to the position that they're in today. In today's episode, we are chatting with entrepreneur and businesswoman, Kate Morris. Kate Morris founded Adore Beauty, Australia's first online cosmetics retailer in 1999 when online shopping was hardly a thing. She's also someone that had vision. She didn't always thrive at work. In fact, she was fired from not one but two jobs in her early years and that was when she realised that maybe she could do something for herself. Kate's understanding of consumer psychology and what people wanted out of an experience led her to turning a $12,000 loan from a boyfriend's dad into a listed company on the ASX with a company worth well over $100 million. Kate has remained grounded and she's very open about it not ever being about the money. She's got some experience in what it takes to be a successful businesswoman and it most certainly didn't happen overnight. As for all of these podcasts, Sean Partners have generously donated $10,000 to the charity of choice of each of our guests. We discuss who gets that money in this chat. The executive producer of this podcast is Keisha Pettit with production assistance from Kelly Stubbs and Brittany Hughes. Let's get into our episode with Kate Morris. So Kate, welcome to the podcast. How are you? I'm really good, Gus. What sort of kid were you? Uh, I was the book nerd, Gus. I was the, the one who could already read by the time I got to school. So I had to sit in the corner on the beanbags while the other kids learnt the ABCs. So yeah, had my head in a book for, for as long as I can remember. Super uncoordinated, really bad at sport. I was the oldest in my family. So I was also the, the bossy big sister, very responsible. And yes, I guess by the time I got to high school, I was into, you know, just all the drama and, and music and debating and probably not the person that anyone at my high school would have expected to go and, and start a, a beauty business. But yeah. <laughs> when you played those parts in the school plays and musicals, were you were you good? Were you sort of were you the tree or were you the star? Where were you? Or somewhere in the middle? You know what? I always played the boy parts, actually. So I played oh. uh, I played the artful dodger in our school's production of Oliver in Year Eleven, and then yeah, it was all, it was always the boy parts because there were never enough boys, and they had the cool girls do the girl parts, and then the rest of us dorks did the <laughs> did the boy parts. But was I a start? No, I think I was okay. Do you go back to any school reunions now? Gosh, I can't remember the last the last one that we that we had I'm still in touch with a few friends from school actually so my best friend from high school still lives about like 20 minutes walk away from me and our kids still all play together so I I kind of <laughs> I feel like that connection is still there. yeah I could just imagine you walking in with like a really cool band behind you you know someone the nerdy girl from school that played the boy parts and look at me now type of stuff you could make a hell of an entrance I reckon oh I don't think that's really my style guys <laughs> Okay. Maybe that's more my style. Maybe that's you. Yeah. <laughs> what was the makeup of your family? So I grew up in Tasmania. Uh, so I had two younger brothers and my parents split up when I was nine. And so then I had these huge sort of extended and blended families after my parents remarried. So like sort of the Brady Bunch <laughs> times two. Lots of kids everywhere. Lots of, you know, lots of fights, but mostly getting along. Look, not a lot of money and so so you had to get a job if you wanted to be able to do any teenage things like, you know, like buy new outfits or, or go out and that kind of thing. So I think there was definitely kind of a work ethic 
early on. You know, if you want something, you're going to need to going to need to do it yourself. Not an entrepreneurial family, actually. So we didn't come from that kind of background. I don't think we even knew anybody that uh, was involved in business when I was growing up. So my parents were both social workers and academics, and I think we were we were very much encouraged to, you know, work hard at school and then go to uni if that was something that you wanted to do. But basically to do something that you could use your skills for and that you could also be really passionate about. So I don't think we were pushed in any particular direction. So if I think about my brothers and sisters, then yes, I guess I'm I'm doing what I'm doing. My, one of my brothers owns a few restaurants. The other brother's a software engineer and my, my youngest uh, half-sister is a chef. So we all ended up doing pretty different, but I, I guess there is sort of a, a bit of an entrepreneurial theme yeah. running under there for a few of us. Yeah, very much just encouraged to be independent, be kind, help other people. Yeah, that's pretty, that pretty good things to be working on. And by the sounds of it, you were allowed to do what you were passionate about. So university was something you decided to go down. What course did you do and where did you go? How much did you enjoy that experience after high school? So I was determined not to stay in Tasmania after high school. I just, I don't, I think I felt like I wanted to break out a little bit and go and meet some new people rather than go to university with all the same people I went to high school with. So yeah. I busted my guts in year 12 to get into law, thought I wanted to, to be a lawyer. Although I actually don't know if I'd really even thought about wanting to be a lawyer. It was just more, okay, well, if you get good marks, you should do like law or medicine or pharmacy or something. And and I didn't want to do medicine. And so I thought, all right, well, you know, law it is. And that's a good, that's a good place to start anyway. And uh, so I moved over to Melbourne and went to Monash and did my first week of law classes and realised at the end of the first week that I absolutely did not want to be a lawyer or actually even finish my law degree. So... <laughs> Well, you worked that so, out quick. <laughs> well, you know, best to work it out quickly, right? Because I think lots of people yeah. get all the way through and then realise. But uh, yeah, no, it was, I, I knew probably from the first lecture, I just went, oh, what was I thinking? No, I don't want to do this. I definitely can't get excited about this for the next for the next five odd years. Which is a good decision, actually, in the end. So I just kind of floated around an arts degree for a bit and did some business subjects. But then I liked the business subjects and so ended up switching into a double degree and so I actually only finished the business bit. I still have like seven-eighths of an arts degree. <laughs> Super useful. Are you going to get that done eventually? You know, my dad keeps keeps suggesting that, you know, <laughs> yeah. you should just go back and finish it. And I was like, yeah, I, I don't think that's going to happen. But, but They'll probably give you an honorary <laughs> doctorate or something one day. So you, you'll get it eventually. And Maybe I just need to hang out for that. Yeah, yeah exactly. I yeah. think you'll be right. <laughs> So you started working in a department of cosmetics in a department store. Was that your first sort of love of of that type of stuff? Yeah, well, I'd actually worked in a chemist after school from the time I was 15 and and always loved. And that sort of had like a beauty section and a a perfume counter. And that was always my favourite bit. And so I loved that from from the get-go. And I actually started working in a pharmacy when I got to Melbourne and then I got fired. What happened? (laughs) Too much attitude. (laughs) (laughs) Too much attitude, no. There's certain, I I think that was my first experience of discovering that there are some places that are not super into people coming up with ideas or, you know, perhaps different ways that things could be done. (laughs) So anyway, it was a good learning. (laughs) Good learning in terms of where I needed to not be, yeah. Can you remember the person that sort of gave you the flick? Can Can you remember sort of, you know, that moment where it was sort of like, oh, 
okay, I probably overstepped for this part of my life. I'm not going to go there again. Or can you take us back to that moment? Oh, gosh, yes. No, well, it was actually the second time I got fired, so I did also get fired. Oh, what was the first one? <laughs> the first one, the first one, uh, let me see. So I had a gap year after school and went and lived up on the Central Coast of New South Wales for a little bit. I worked in an ABC shop and my boss took a, took a disliking to me once she found out that I was going to do a law degree and, I don't know, she just maybe felt threatened or something. So, yeah, so I remember that one first. And so the second one was like, oh, not again. <laughs> <laughs> not again but it actually it, it kind of all worked out for the best because it was out of that that second job at the chemist that I actually got a job working on the cosmetic counters and so I worked in in different departments to stores I was working for one of the big European brands and so they sent me around from store to store which I absolutely loved so look everything works out for the best as it's as it's supposed to in the long run probably didn't seem like it at the time <laughs> But yes, that was that was my uni job working on the cosmetic counters, which is kind of really where the the idea for Adore Beauty came from. Just that experience of of being part of that retail experience for customers and getting to talk to so many women about you know kind of what they wanted from the beauty industry and versus what they were actually getting. And I think what they were getting was a very, I guess, uh, sort of quite a hard sell experience that I wasn't particularly good at, to be honest, because I kind of felt like that really what you should be doing is just giving people the information and let them buy what they want to buy but it's it's just not really set up that way because we've all got you know sales targets and commissions that you've got to hit and mm. I used to get told off a lot for not wearing enough makeup to work which you know I was 19 years old it's like how much makeup do you need to wear when you're 19 and so yeah. I, I would sort of wear wear the minimum and to be honest a lot of customers like to come to me because I look like a normal person yeah <laughs> rather than um you know, this this kind of glamour's on. Uh, so I was always kind of a bit more approachable, I suppose. But but really, my theory was always that well, if you give customers, you know, honest and truthful information, and and be willing to say to them, hey, look, actually, don't get this one because I don't I don't think that's going to work for you based on based on what you've told me, and maybe actually look at this one over here. It was that kind of experience that I saw people really respond well to, and that's what made them loyal. Yeah, and that's that kindness you got from your mum and dad going back to what you said right at the start. You know, that's be kind to people. And from my point of view, my grandfather said, oh, you could sell ice to Eskimos, but only if you thought it was the best ice, you know? Only if you thought it was the best one. No, I'm exactly the same. I'm exactly the same. And so, yes, it's, it's about being kind, but it's also about just being authentic and honest. People can see that. Definitely. And if, if, if anything's happened over the last 18 months, being authentic and real with everyone slowing down just a little bit, mm -hmm. that has really shone through the kindness of certain people. And, you know, I've, I've been working out my village over the last 18 months, you know, just writing down a list of the people that I love and adore. Yeah. And I cannot imagine living my world without. And as people have swapped in and out, people have been erased, people have been added. But one thing I've been able to do is just focus in on the kindness to those people because they're the ones at the end of the day that are so important. And I love when you you probably walked away from sales targets and didn't do exactly what you're meant to do because it's just not in your makeup. Yeah, look, um, <laughs> I think we've we've seen a consistent theme, Gus, that I'm not a particularly good employee, so... <laughs> so better to then to start your own thing, which is pretty much what happened, right? Like how long That's were it. you there at the department store before you went, you know what, being my own boss might be the go. And how did that all come about? Uh, I think I did that job for about three years while I was at uni, but had been sort of thinking about and planning a door for, for probably about the last eight months of that. And it was, 
I guess, I mean, if you think back to, I mean, we're talking about like 1999 here, so it's like super early days of the internet and we didn't all have smartphones then or, you know, or Facebook or broadband even, like it was it was dial-up. So I got to use the internet at the uni computer labs and having always been a beauty junkie, I guess, I would go and, and look on there for beauty websites and think, oh, why isn't there anything in Australia? Because I feel like you could do this whole shopping experience much better online. You could give people much better information and they could actually read the ingredients before they buy something. And you could explain to them what the ingredients did and they could shop many different brands at the same time, which was actually not something that you could easily do in a department store. And for me, I guess I started boring all of my friends with talking about this idea and just banging onto them all the time and in the end it was actually my my boyfriend who turned around to me and said look you know you're gonna do this or what (laughs) and that was that was probably actually the light bulb moment for me because I had never considered entrepreneurship or, or starting a business as a career like that was just not even on my radar of a thing that you could do that was something that other people did and then I guess I thought about it and just went oh well, I guess I could. <laughs> what would that involve? Well, yeah. I guess I'd need to get a get a website built and, and buy some products. And I spoke to my boyfriend's dad who ran a motel. So he was about the only business person I knew. And he said, oh, well, you know, if you want to put together a business plan, I'll have a look at it for you. And so I did that and, you know, had to go and borrow a book on how to write a business plan. And, and so I did that. And uh, yes, and he ended up loaning us the money. It was $12,000 to to go and wow. get started. And so, yeah, it started up in my garage, like literally in my garage. What happened to the boyfriend? He's still around. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, we've got two kids. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. Good. I'm so happy about that. That's fantastic. So you're in the garage, you've, the 12 grand's been given and you're like, probably if you're like me, you're like, I've got to pay that back as fast as possible. Yeah, for sure. No, it was. A, I definitely felt that big responsibility there that I was like, oh, okay, well, I'm, you know, best not lose this money. Yeah. So you're there in your garage. At what stage do you start going, I know what I'm doing here, you know, and I feel like we're on a winner? Oh, gosh, like 12 years in. <laughs> no, it certainly, it certainly wasn't a quick thing. I think because this is such a, I mean, for anyone who was around then, and of course we employ people at a door now who were literally like born then. But in those days, like shopping online was not a thing that everybody did. And so it was just very, very early stages. So probably the business started 10 years too early. And so it just took a long time to kind of build up. But I think yeah. I think the thing that probably kept me going the whole time was that even if you're winning over customers like one by one, I'd still get these these fabulous emails from customers going, oh my goodness, it's my first time shopping online and I bought some things from you and this is just like, this is just great. This is the best thing ever. And now if you could get this product and this product and this product, then I don't actually ever have to go into a department store again and you know, you've made my day. And, and so those, those kind of little nuggets is like, okay, I'm at, I am on the right path. We'll get there eventually. But yeah, not, it was not ever a quick thing. Can you remember the first time you were sort of sitting at the laptop and like, ding, there was like an order or how did it work? Like that first time you went, I'm actually going to invoice something. I hope this machine works. Or I hope it all works out well. I hope I deliver it properly, like all that stuff. I'm pretty sure it was like my mum or my auntie or something. That was the, <laughs> the first one. It was just people who felt sorry yeah. for me. We thought I was quite mad, but we're gonna gonna buy something to to support me. Yeah. 
That's cool. I love that. I love the thought of like, you know, she you now it starts today. So everyone buy that perfume or everyone buy that face cream or whatever it might be. That's it. Just going back to your department score days for a moment, as a young man with a girlfriend walking into Chatswood Chase, which is where I used to live in on the North Shore of Sydney. And going to, like you say, these beautiful women who were selling stuff and they all had the gear on, the big lips and the whole bit. Yeah. It was terrifying. It's terrifying. And I think most women find it terrifying. It's very intimidating. Absolutely intimidating. And I, and I always felt like they were wearing the badge or the, or the thing of a particular type. So they'd always steer me that way. And I remember a girlfriend, Jackie Masters, my first love, who broke my heart actually a few years later. But we went out for a few years and she had this perfume. I can't remember the name of it now, but if I saw the bottle and I love the smell of it, right? And I remember trying just to explain that to someone and they just kept wanting to send me over to, you know, L'Oreal or something else. I can't remember the name of it. So you could have saved me all that heartache if you had just, if, oh. if you had just got there a little bit earlier, because I was doing this in the mid eighties, late eighties. Yep, exactly. And, and that's, that's the thing is that the whole industry was just not very set up to be customer centric. It was much more about, you know, kind of funneling you into a particular direction, which might not be what you wanted at all. And that was feedback that I would consistently hear from, you know, from women too, who would sort of say things like, oh God, I, you know, I came away from the counter and I'd, you know, came home and burst into tears because I'd been sold $300 worth of stuff that I didn't want. And then they would feel so terrible and then make their husbands go back and return it for them because they couldn't even bear to like approach the counter because it was too scary. And it's like, oh, that's, I mean, the whole point of beauty or, you know, or fragrance or, or whatever is that it's actually, it's self-care. So it should be a purchase that makes you feel good. And if the shopping experience is not making you feel good, then something is broken. And so that was, I guess, yes, a thing that I consistently observed and and just thought I mean I always I always loved beauty products I always loved I guess as you know a dorky child that you could do your hair in a particular way and and you you get you can be whatever version of yourself that you would like to be that day you know pop some red lipstick on and kick some ass right but you don't get that feeling if the experience of purchasing those products makes you feel rubbish yeah, it's empowering, right? My mum, we picked her up the other day, we hadn't seen her for age. She put a bit of lippy on, took her out to a cafe, and she's just yeah. like, oh, she I've got hope right. again. Like, I've got hope. And 87-year-old hottie, I call her. Yeah, well, I, I think, you know, all you have to look at is, for starters, what did everybody buy during lockdown when they felt they needed self-care and, and this kind of nourishment and, and in a door we've called it the scented candle index. So scented candle index is directly correlated with exactly how rubbish people are feeling during lockdown. So people are you know feeling lousy and it's like you can't go out and see your friends and, and but you want to treat yourself and so people buy scented candles. But then also you look at what's the first people thing people want to do when they get out of lockdown? Oh, they want to go and get their hair done. You know, because if my hair is done, I will feel like a human again. Yeah. So I think, I think it is, you know, beauty is a big self-care activity. Just quickly interrupting the episode to say a very big thank you to the sponsor of this podcast, and that is Shaw & Partners Financial Services. Shaw & Partners are an Australian investment and wealth management firm who manage over $28 billion of assets under advice. With seven offices across Australia, Shore & Partners act for and on behalf of individuals, institutions, corporates and charities. For more info, you can check out their website at shoreandpartners.com.au. That's S-H-A-W for sure. 
Ventura and Partners Financial Services, your partners in building and preserving wealth. And let's get back into the episode. Well, you've done an amazing job with it. So from those opening times of sort of being in your garage and your mum and auntie and all friends and family putting their orders in, at what stage did you go, wow, this is this is like huge. This is big now. This is not just me doing my best. This is actually could be world changing for you and your and generations. Did you have you had that moment? Look, I think I think there were moments along the way, sort of those little kind of whoa moments. And I definitely remember, oh gosh, this would have been maybe six or seven years ago. And I was and this is at the stage where Adore probably had, I don't know, maybe 50 employees. And one day someone came through the office wearing a fire marshal's hat and honking an air horn and going, right, there's a fire drill. Everybody needs to go and like gather out on the grass area. And I was like, I didn't know about this. And then I thought, oh my goodness, I've built the size company where we have like a safety function and people are doing fire drills that I personally <laughs> did not organize. Like, this is wild. <laughs> and uh, so, yes, everyone's like, oh, you know, God, there's a fire drill, but I just thought it was the coolest thing ever. <laughs> <laughs> And then I can remember another moment, I think, uh, let me see, so 2018 when we moved into our latest warehouse and distribution facility. And, of course, I'd been to see it before, you know, before we signed the lease and, and all of that. But then when I first walked in and I saw, you know, they had the big cherry pickers up kind of install, installing all the electricals and starting to put in all of the racking and it just walked in and went, oh, I'm going to need to sit down a minute. Like, this is just massive. <laughs> this is this is absolutely massive. So look, it's probably a personality flaw that I'm I'm actually like I'm actually really terrible at sort of celebrating the wins or observing milestones or kind of taking those moments. Like I'm just not very good at it. I actually I don't know many entrepreneurs that are good at it because I think it's a consistent trait that you always keep running towards the horizon, which of course continues to be as far away as it ever was. But yes, every now and again, you will get those little kind of vertigo moments where you're like, "Woo, okay, okay, this has gotten quite big. I've got a couple of mates who are a bit like you and I have to sort of ground them. And I normally start with a big cuddle and I put my arms on their shoulders and say, just for a moment, just think about where you started and think about where you are now. Can we just have a a moment where you just go, this is this is really good. Just take a minute, yeah. You know, because you're so, it's, it's always the next goal, right? The next moment, whatever it might be. So it is funny how your personality trait probably allows you to be successful because of certain things and it won't allow you to necessarily enjoy it as much as others. Won't allow you to enjoy it. No, I know. <laughs> it's terrible, isn't it? But that's why your friends need you to do that for them, Gus, because we all need that. We all need that. We all need those friends that will just kind of, when you're pressing towards whatever the next thing is, your friends who will, you know, I, I think about, you know, the day that Adore listed, which was actually, well, yeah, just about a year ago. And, um, you know, the friends that will send you giant bunches of flowers and a huge cake and just <laughs> go, you know what, you should actually just enjoy yeah. today. That's what you need. That's what your friends are for. I can't imagine a day like that. Like listed on the stock exchange, that stuff, like I am not a, a smart man book wise, right? But I know that, you know, a company gets valued and then there's a certain amount of shares and there you go. So what happened that day for you? Can you tell our listeners what happened that day? And at what moment did you know how much all of a sudden you're worth? 
Yeah, look, I mean, you kind of, you know that you know that what the valuation is going to be a couple of weeks before when you, when you IPO, you know, they finish the book build and everybody says how many shares they want to buy. So it kind of, that part kind of happens a couple, couple of weeks before and that's, that's pretty wild, but also just sort of a bit surreal really. But the day of listing, I think, definitely wasn't the picture I had in my head because we were still in lockdown in one of, I think it was, oh, maybe it was our second lockdown. It was the really big one in Melbourne last year, the one that went for like four months. And so we were still in lockdown that day. And so we didn't, I guess I'd always had the picture in my head that if this moment happened, you'd be there at the stock exchange and get to ring the bell. Of course. Ding, ding, ding. Yeah. So of course what actually happened was that the ASX like posted me a little bell, like kind of yay big. (laughs) And we were at home and, you know, rang it over Zoom and then it was kind of all over and then the kids wanted a sandwich for lunch because they were hungry. It was like, okay. Of course. So go make your sandwich then. <laughs> so it was um, was a bit of an anticlimax, to be honest. <laughs> I did actually get to go. Once the lockdown ended, we got to travel again. So in, I think, yeah, last December, I, I did I did get to go to the ASX and they let me ring the bell. So <laughs> that is so great. <laughs> so it just happened later, yeah. So... It's like winning lotto, but a few times over, or maybe Powerball or something like that. But this is something you've created. As someone who realised early that you had to be the boss, all of a sudden you are the boss and it's worked out really, really well. How do you keep yourself focused to keep going and making it better and making sure that everyone that believes in what you are doing you know, keeps on loving you, you being authentic and real? I don't know. I, I don't, maybe there, um, maybe there are some people for whom it's about the money and it's getting to a financial goal. And, and that's kind of, that, that was, it was never about that for me. And I actually don't know, I actually don't know a lot of entrepreneurs for whom it's really about that. It's more, can you turn your vision into something that is really meaningful? And so for me, it's more about it being meaningful to the team that work at Adore, like that to me was the really special part and that on that day every single person that worked at the company was given shares and got to be you know got to be an owner of the company like that to me was really special and those things are always the really special things right and you know we can continue to have like really meaningful impact for our customers and change the narrative for them in terms of of what beauty means to them and and for all of the suppliers that we've worked with and supported us for so many years too so I don't think my goals were ever financial goals. I love that answer. Is there a member of staff or, or like a group of staff that you just like, oh, just love them. They've been with me. They've seen the highs and lows. They've come through. I can trust them now. They've become more than just employees. Are there, I suppose they were the ones you're thinking of when, when it all went well at the stock exchange, you went, well, I've really changed their life now. The thing about Adore is that actually, and this is the funny thing that, that is, I guess, hard for me to understand about the way that everybody else lives and works, but I actually don't have to work with anybody that I don't like. Yeah. <laughs> so actually I love all of them. And I mean, I think, you know, just it was actually just a few weeks ago that we had, unfortunately, another virtual event and a whole bunch of people in the team had sent in and, and the marketing department had edited up this beautiful little video of everybody talking about, you know, some of the things that had happened that year and, and what being part of a door meant to them and I just bawled I just bawled the whole way through it because it's just like oh you're all so beautiful (laughs) and really the thing that everybody said was it's about the people it's about the people I mean yeah you get to do you get to do fun things right like it's a beauty company we get to do fun stuff 
fun work and, and meaningful work, but really everybody said that the, the really special thing is the people that they get to work with, that people still feel that connection to each other, I think is, is really special. Yeah, connection's the key. How did you come up with the name? Adore. Yeah. <laughs> You're going to laugh about this. It's not a very romantic story, actually. So back when, I mean, if you cast your mind back to 1999, there wasn't, you know, kind of Google or anything at that point. There were directories. There were kind of these directory websites. So it's LookSmart was one of them. And um, there were a whole bunch of them. And they would basically say, okay, here's the shopping section over here it's yeah. wild i try and explain this to my kids and they're like you're what? deranged yeah. and so and, and these directories were always arranged in alphabetical order and so james and i were sitting down working out okay well, what are we going to call this thing we're like well it better start with a because there's no way i want to be all the way down the bottom yeah and so we actually just sat there and went through the whole dictionary and looked at all of the different words and going okay what what are some words that kind of make sense with beauty and that was a door <laughs> got to ad Adore. I'm just like, oh, yeah, I like that. Has anyone taken that domain name? No? Okay, done. Take it. Beautiful. I think if someone says they adore you or they say I love you, I love you, I adore you, they both mean the same to me. I love you gets a much bigger rap, right? Everyone's into the I love you bit. Yeah. But I adore you is actually, it's like you're nearly, you want to be a part of them somehow. It's like even more than love. Is it? I know I know you wanted the A, but. You want to give them a big squeeze. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. That's what we wanted to do for our customers. It's just, you know, you know, you're all lovely. Let's give you a big squeeze. I love it. I think it's fantastic. I must admit, Kate, I was asking my daughters about you. I've got an 18-year-old doing the HSC. I've got a 20-year-old. I've got a very fashionable lady right next to me here who you would say doesn't need adore products but probably buys them because she's got a pretty good natural. She's young and brilliant. And she was saying to me that you're someone that, they look up to. All of them did. Oh, that's nice. What does that mean to you when you hear that? Well, it's, it's slightly scary. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, really? I think role models are important, right? And it's difficult. And it was something that I kind of had to get over early on in the journey is, is the squeamishness around being visible. And I think particularly in Australia where there's, there is a, that kind of tall poppy thing and yeah. for women especially. But I think it is... In the end, it is more important to be visible and to be and to be authentic and to talk about the things that were hard and not to try and gloss over it all and, you know, make yourself look like a big shot. But it's more just to, to show the struggle and to show where you can get to in spite of the struggle because I think, I mean, they say that, you know, you can't, you can't be what you can't see. And I, I mean, clearly that's not true mm. because... I'm living proof of that, but gosh, it's a lot easier. Yeah. And if we want to get to a point where, you know, the, the business pages are not just filled with pictures of blokes and it's not just all men's businesses that get the funding, well, some of us need to <laughs> need to stick our necks out and to be visible. And so, and so that makes me happy, I think. If there are women out there who look at me and go, you know what, I could do that, then bloody fantastic. That's great. I actually, I interviewed um, an entrepreneur the other day who is now a supplier to Adore, but I spoke at her graduation in 2017 and she said that was the moment. She said that was the moment I decided I was going to start my own business. I'm like, wow, that's really cool. <laughs> that's really cool. 
Yeah. You don't realise it at the time what you're what you're doing. You, we all play multiple roles, Kate, you know, in, in our lives as, as parents, partners, bosses, friends, a child, uh, you know, whatever it might be. How important is it to you because you've, your kids are going to have a very different upbringing then perhaps you, unless you can control it and look after them to make sure they have the same work ethic, the same, you know, attitude to, to work because, you know, they read stuff, they know stuff, they know that they're in a really comfy position. How difficult is that for you to make sure that you get that right? Oh, I think every, you know, every parent wants to bring their kid up with the right values, right? Like regardless of, of what position you're in, I think we all have to recognise that, you know, in Australia, we're all pretty privileged, to be honest. We all kind of won the won the birth lottery just by being born here. And so, from my perspective, we practice gratitude a lot. Uh, so, that's actually something that we do around the dinner table every night. We call it three things. And everybody has to go around the table and say three things that happened today that made you happy or that you were grateful for. And so, I think that is a mindset that you can practice. I think you also can raise your kids to be not afraid of hard work and to develop some grit. I have my, my oldest who's, who's 10 now and she started piano lessons a couple of years ago and found it difficult at the start because she didn't like to practice. And so she didn't practice and so then every week she'd rock up to the lesson and the piano teacher would be able to say, you, know, you didn't practice, did you? And she was like, mum, I don't like piano, I want to quit. <laughs> and I said, well got news for you sport you know we've you know we talked about this and you're gonna you know you're gonna do this for a year and if you don't like it after a year then we can look at switching to a different instrument but I think you know why don't you try doing the practice and we'll put it you know we'll put it in the timer every day and you, you know set a timer on on the google home and um and you do your you do your practice and and she discovered that if she did the practice, then she got better at it. And if she got better at it, then she enjoyed it more. And then she didn't mind the practice so much. And then it's like, okay, here we go. I feel like I'm winning at parenting, even though I felt awful when I wouldn't let her yeah. quit. So, I mean, I think the other thing that's really important for me is making sure my kids have more financial education than I had, because growing up, that wasn't something that was just ever discussed. And I think, I think we do our kids a disservice if we don't talk about money and talk about the decisions that we make. And I frankly think it's a bit of a failing of our education system that people come out of high school knowing quadratic equations, but not knowing how to manage a budget or how equity markets work. Like, could we, I mean, yeah, anyway. My dad always said, why, why can't you balance your checkbook? I said, well, no one's actually told me. So we sat down one weekend and he told me, I went, oh, that makes sense. And there's so much stuff at school that I, like you said, the algebra for me is the one. Like my daughter's doing HSC at the moment. She goes, dad, I've got like three weeks left of algebra because she knows she just has to tick that box and it'll never come up in her plans for her future. But Correct. believe me at the moment, working the ATM and understanding money coming in from her Kmart job and what she can go out on the weekend with and put petrol in the car, that's the stuff that she needs to learn. That's it. And, you know, I guess we can all, we all have the opportunity to teach our kids those things. I love the gratitude stuff at home. We have these fast five questions that we ask all our guests. So the first one is, have you got a favourite quote or a favourite saying or something that someone told you and you went, aha, I'm going to use that? My favourite one's actually the, uh, the well, they call it the man in the arena quote, quote by uh, Theodore Roosevelt. But of course, it's, you know, it's the woman in the arena for me. So it's the one that's, um, it's not the critic who counts, not the one who points out how the strong person stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. 
the credit belongs to the woman who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood. Goes on a bit, but who at the, who at the best? <laughs> who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if she fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that her place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. Wow. That's a quote. That is the one that, that I just think, you know, when it all is a bit hard and a bit scary and you feel like probably you're going you're gonna to fail at something or it's people are going to have a go at you, that's, that's the one that I remember. It's like, well, you know what, at least I am in the arena, right? You are certainly in the arena and that makes me just jump off the top five for a moment because I've got two daughters and the fact is that this world is a much different world to the one that I grew up in and hopefully it'll become even easier and so forth. Did you find it harder at times because you were a lady or a girl? I think, yes, women do. I mean, in the beauty industry, it's maybe easier than some other industries because it's actually like a really proud and long history of, of female entrepreneurship. So you have, you know, Elizabeth Arden and Estee Lauder and Helena Rubinstein and these beauty icons. But I think nevertheless, women do face less belief. I think women have to do much more to prove themselves. I think women are held to much higher standards constantly. I mean, there's so much data that looks at, you know, how much harder it is for women founders to actually raise capital. And I've experienced that, like, you know, in private equity, pitching to room after room after room of white guys in suits. And, and that's hard when you're pitching a business that is run by women and for women and they just don't get it. So, yes, yes, things are things are harder. I think as a woman, you just actually have to be twice as good. Well, I certainly know that my wife's twice as good as me. I know that for sure. (laughs) Favourite holiday destination? Oh, I've actually just been dreaming of Noosa for the last few months. Like that's just, (laughs) it's nothing, nothing fancy, but just that's, that's where our family loves to go because it's just, it's great for the kids. And every time I go there, I just, I feel myself relax. Of course, no, it's just, I, I know exactly what you mean, having a couple of skewies at the Surf Life Saving Club looking oh, out over the water there, I mean. Can't beat that view. That'll yeah. do. Favourite book? So, I mean, for pleasure, I actually just like reading, just sort of fun to read things. So I like Leanne Moriarty or Stephen King, like I've read every Stephen King ever. But then, like, if you're talking about business books or things that, are, that I've learned a lot from, I would say the two I've learned the most from would be The Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz which is, is about just kind of the founder experience. I feel like I really got a lot out of that. And also Daring Greatly by Brene Brown, which is, I guess, kind of related back to that, to that Roosevelt quote. Have you written a book yourself? Me? No, no. Will you one day? People keep threatening to try and make me work. <laughs> Look, I, I mean, never say never, but it's, it's not on my, on my list for the moment. Not on the priority list. Okay. Favourite movie? Oh, again, this is really hard. It's like, oh, just picked one. You can have a few if you like. Can I? All right. I, look, I loved all the original Star Wars movies when I was oh, a kid. Like, brilliant. I've seen all of them like a bajillion times. Empire Strikes Back is obviously the best one and <laughs> I will not enter into any discussion about that. What about the stormtroopers and the fact that they just cannot shoot straight? Go, oh, like, hilarious. at some stage, someone has got, so they've got to go, come on, guys. It's just there. Doot, doot, doot. Did you watch that one in the, there was that episode uh, that was uh, directed by Taika Waititi that was, I think it was the last one in the Mandalorian series where they, they just put in this whole joke about that. It was hilarious. Yeah. So, so look, I love, I love those, like, you know, any kind of 80s sci-fi I love. So more Star Wars than Star Trek. Yeah, definitely, definitely Star Wars, not Star Trek. If I think about, okay, what are the movies that I will watch every time they come on TV? I would watch Clueless yeah. every time. Right. Another one that I've seen, which is a bit newer, I loved uh, Booksmart. 
It's directed by Olivia Wilde. It's just it's just this fabulous one about, you know, just female friendship and I, I really love that. And then the other one that I watch every single Christmas and I cry in it every single time is It's a Wonderful Life. Yeah, absolutely. I'm the same. I, I, I cry at the Qantas ads, I, I at the Telstra ads. Like I, if you get that little bit of music and you get that right little connection between the granddad and the son or the mum, then the, oh, like I'm, I'm gone. So you can imagine what it's like in that movie. Forget about it. Yeah. Yeah, every time. <laughs> and the last and most important question is that uh, Shaw and Partners, Earl and Al, have said $10,000 to all our guests' favourite charity. So we'd love to know who you'd like to give the $10,000 to and why it's so important to you. Oh, aren't they amazing? I just, I love their um, generosity to the, the community that they work in. I think it's fantastic. They've got their heart in the right place, that's for sure. Oh, no, they really do. They really do. Look, I'd love to donate to The Hunger Project. So they are doing some just really tremendous work, particularly around activating communities to bring them out of hunger and to bring them out of poverty, particularly in developing countries. So I've been supporting them for, for a little while now. And I think particularly the way that they look to engage communities by activating the leadership of women I think is is really extraordinary and and I think if one of the things that I really want to achieve with my life is create a better world for my girls and and all the girls and and I think um, the hunger project is doing really tremendous work I got no doubt that you'll help them and many others just by you being you Kate so thank you so much for your time today and it was really lovely to get to know you a little bit better well it was a pleasure to chat Gus really enjoyed it Well, that was Kate Morris, and what I loved about that chat was just how modest she is. The fact that she's done all that she's done, and she just seems to be that person who is exactly the person that asked for that $12,000 and started the whole industry in her garage. What an absolute gem, and I love chatting to her. Coming up next on Not An Overnight Success is Kurt Fernley. Kurt Fernley is a three-time Paralympic gold medalist and two-time Commonwealth Games gold medalist. He has won over 40 marathons, including New York, Chicago and London. And he's even crawled, that's right, crawled the Kokoda track. Kurt was born without the lower portion of his spine. Kurt is the personification of determination, guts and the Aussie spirit. A big thank you to Shaw and Partners Financial Services who have generously supported this podcast and also donated $10,000 to the charity of choice of each of our guests to thank them for their time. Shaw and Partners are an Australian investment and wealth management firm who manage over $28 billion of assets under advice. With seven offices around Australia, Shaw and Partners act for and on behalf of individuals, institutions, corporates and charities. For more info, you can check out their website at shawandpartners.com.au. That's S-H-A-W for sure. Shaw and Partners Financial Services, your partners in building and preserving wealth. <laughs>